0: Welcome
1: to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books on Higher Education podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ariadne Obregon. Today, I am delighted to be talking to Nicholas Dirks. Nick is the current president and CEO of the renowned New York Academy of Sciences, one of the oldest scientific organizations in the United States. It's not all past appointments include serving as the 10th Chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley from 2013 to 2017, and as the Executive Vice President and Dean of the Faculty for Arts and Sciences at Columbia University. In today's conversation, I will be interviewing Nick on his most recent book, City of Intellect, The Uses and Abuses of the University, published by Cambridge University Press. Drawing from his experiences of having belonged to the faculty, administrative, and presidential circles of the university, in City of Intellect, Nick offers his nuance and comprehensive reflections on the solutions for the most pressing issues facing universities today, ranging from issues with free speech, interdisciplinary work, budgeting costs, internal politics, and the devaluing of the liberal arts. In a time where universities face fierce attacks from the political right and left and a distrust from the general public, Nick defends the role in society as key institutions that guard and create knowledge to understand the world at large and drive meaningful change. Nick argues for our imagination of the university to ensure its survival and relevance in the years to come, positioning him as a visionary leader in a time where higher education needs it the most. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Delighted to have you on.
0: I'm delighted to be here, Arianna.
1: Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to ask you: um, Can you um, introduce yourself uh, and talk a little bit about your professional background? And yeah, just introduce yourself to our listeners and how you know your experiences led to the writing of of this book.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, really pleased to be here in this conversation with you. Uh, My own background as an academic, I studied uh, the history and anthropology of India, of South Asia, uh, and uh, became interested in India really because of an early experience I had living there for a year. Uh, uh, And I just became fascinated with. with so many different issues that uh, allowed me both to spend uh, a lot of time there, particularly when I was doing my dissertation research and in uh, the early uh, academic years of of my career, uh, but also to to think more broadly about the kinds of social, political, uh, and cultural issues that were raised around uh, uh, around area studies in uh, in the U.S. context, which is to say, uh, you know, thinking and uh, in relationship to political events in the U.S. about, you know, both the uh, the legacy of uh, British colonial rule in India, uh, uh, but also about uh, the experience of, uh, you know, coming from a different place, studying uh, a culture and a civilization, trying to engage uh, with critical issues, but also uh, trying to champion the importance of serious uh, studies of Asia and other parts of the world uh, in the U.S. Academy. So I, uh, I, I I got this kind of bi-disciplinary training by virtue of the fact that I was in a history department studying primarily with an anthropologist, uh, and I went on to have joint appointments. And in fact, when I had a 10-year a, a, a period, which was one of the most uh, happy and productive parts of my academic career at the University of Michigan, uh, I worked with colleagues to create a joint Ph.D. program in anthropology and history, uh, in effect, to try to uh, make available for other students the the the, the multidisciplinary uh, kind of education I'd had myself. <clears throat> so, you know, uh, 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 you know the uh, the old expression, uh, you know, no no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, I ended up uh, because of that. Uh, because of the success of, uh, of that program in Michigan, being invited to be chair of the Department of Anthropology at Columbia, I moved to New York. And then because of the success of uh, building or rebuilding that, uh, that, that department, uh, I was asked by the then president of Columbia to become the dean and uh, vice president of arts and sciences there. Uh, and so I hadn't really intended to move from my life as an as a professor and uh, and and writer, researcher, teacher, uh, into academic administration, but I did so really in the first instance because I was interested in creating interdisciplinary opportunities for for students. And then, secondly, because uh, you know, I was given the opportunity to 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 do some of the things I was doing in my home departments uh, across a broader cross section of the uh, of the university, and I just found it incredibly interesting to learn more about other fields. Uh, when I was at Columbia, there were twenty nine departments that uh, that that I was responsible for. So I worked with chairs of biology and chemistry, helped to build a new department in environmental studies. Uh, But also dealt with some of the crises that existed in older departments, like the Department of English, uh, or uh, for that matter, the Department of Spanish and Portuguese Studies, which was going through a period of generational crisis and renewal. But the the point is that I just found it uh, incredibly interesting intellectually to have these experiences. But I also learned more about the university as an institution. And I realized, of course, that, uh, you know, like, um, uh, like all universities, Columbia was, uh, 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 was, you know, this incredibly successful institution, been around for a very long time, not as long, of course, as uh, the great old universities in the UK that have been there since, uh, you know, uh, uh, for a millennium. Uh, virtually by now, but um, but still that, you know, that universities had been among the most perdurant of institutions in the United States, existing longer than corporations or other kinds of institutions. Uh, at, at the same time uh, that they were institutions that found uh, it very difficult sometimes to change. And, you know, my sense was always that this was a kind of paradox on the one hand, that they could survive over long periods of time. Uh, uh, but that they, uh, in fact, resisted change, uh, even though uh, uh, there were apparent reasons why uh, these institutions should change more and change more quickly, in order to, as it were, keep up with the times. if uh, possible even to keep ahead of the times. So, uh, so I began to 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 try to work to find uh, strategies to, you know, to preserve what was best about, of course, uh, the old institution in terms of its commitments to learning. Its uh, the access it afforded to students to 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 work with you know terrific professors and to you know have these kinds of transformational experiences that higher education involves, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, but but at the same time uh, uh, to 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 be part of uh, necessary uh, uh, changes in in the institution. And I had gone to college during protests about Vietnam, so you know I was also concerned about. Uh, the relationship between the university and the political world outside, but um, uh, but in that in that in the spirit, as it were, of the first work I did in academic administration—that is to say, building a joint PhD program—I championed interdisciplinary studies. Uh, I worked very hard with uh, colleagues at Columbia to diversify the faculty uh, while I was dean. Uh, and I became very interested in uh, in the kind of globalization of the university, that is to say, the kinds of relationships that American universities were establishing with universities or sometimes new universities, sometimes old universities in other parts of the world, and uh, including, you know China, the Middle East, Singapore, India, et cetera. Uh, and it, um, uh, it 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 became clear to me that there were uh, really important things that universities should do in a global context because, universities tend to be the most successful, in some sense, uh, the most successful global institution. Uh, It's where, you know, students from all over the world, faculty from all over the world come, go, maintain connections, uh, establish friendships, but also learn different ways of thinking about the world. So, uh, So those were the kinds of areas that I really became engaged in when I was a dean and then, when I went on from Columbia to move t- to Berkeley to become its uh, its chancellor, uh, I became, you know, especially focused uh, indeed on those same kinds of questions. You know, how to make uh, interdisciplinary under- undergraduate education more uh, more vital. How to uh, uh, keep uh, the graduate program sort of uh, you know developing with the times. How to uh, uh, use the global um, reputation of Berkeley to establish better international kinds of ties, uh, and you know how to move the institution in a way to uh, to change thoughtfully, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know to 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 change uh, perhaps a little bit more aggressively uh, in a world that was uh, changing so quickly. So, uh, so that's the kind of story. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of, uh, uh, idealized version of my career. Of course, uh, uh, you know, you engage in change, you engage in, uh, these kinds of moves from being a member of faculty to administration and you, uh, you learn that it's not quite as simple, that there are a lot of disagreements, uh, there are crises that, uh, come up, there are, uh, challenges that, um, uh, you know, are sometimes, uh, uh really uh, vexing and and difficult uh and so uh you know I, I i also realized there's 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 a kind of drama to this uh, to this life that uh, certainly uh, i had and so when i stepped down and had some time and then the pandemic came and gave me more time i thought i really wanted to both write a kind of uh a kind of memoir of my experiences not memoir of my personal experiences but of my professional experiences uh, but also try to try to write about some of the uh, major challenges that exist at the level of uh, the university uh, certainly both in the private university and the public university context in the US because I've been both in academic administration at Columbia and Berkeley but also uh, to think more broadly about some of the kinds of issues that are roiling on college campuses and lo and behold the book comes out and those controversies have just gotten more intense uh, and uh, and 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 more difficult I think
1: Yeah oh thank you for that introduction that was wonderful very comprehensive and I think yeah I think you're uh I think you mentioned in your book that you're someone that does not you know, you don't stay in in your lane. (laughs) You've been, you know, part of the faculty, you've been an administrator, you've been president. You know, you you're someone that sees has experience with all these roles and sees, you know, value and you understand all these different circles in universities. So, um, yeah, thank you for that comprehensive introduction. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about this idea of interdisciplinary work because it's uh something you mentioned throughout your your book you know how important it is to to foster this um and I wonder if you could speak more about that because I think it's um ties into one of the ways that we can reimagine universities you know foster interdisciplinary work to address uh our present challenges you know and all the, you know, AI, for instance, and how we, you know, the arts and sciences need to come together and we need to do more interdisciplinary work. But also it relates to this idea of how it can, um, mm, you know, make make faculty, you know, if they were were to have different appointments at different departments and see the value in interdisciplinary work, they would, I don't know, not... mm, not stay, uh, not feel that tied to their own department and to their own. Because um, there's this idea, isn't it, that faculty just say, oh, the department is my identity and I don't want to really collaborate with anyone else. And there's this kind of vicious attitude <laughs> towards other departments and there's no collaboration. So, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the idea of interdisciplinary work and how it's, I guess, key in how we can reimagine universities.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Uh, well, you know, I think a uh, couple of things are relevant to, to 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 an answer to your to your query, and 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 one is uh, that you know many of the disciplines that we continue to uh, to have in universities, then that continue to kind of provide the basic structure of university governance. Uh, were in fact created in the late 19th century, uh, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, you know, into the early 20th century as well. So they've been around for a long time. Uh, and one of the reasons they've been around for a long time is, uh, is the second uh, part of the response, which is that uh, as disciplines uh, get created and professional associations around them, you know, many of the early uh, disciplines, uh, for example, the American Historical Association in the U.S. and I'm sure cognate uh, institutions in the U.K. Uh, and in other parts of the world, uh, basically they were created at the same time, and uh, these associations in the first instance became uh, resources for uh, for faculty who were. Uh, 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 you know, being trained in, in in their graduate studies, moving to different universities, but then uh, through these associations, would stay in touch with each other. But you know, as 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 time goes on, uh, you know, the logic of professionalization uh, begins to take over, and increasingly, what uh, what happens is that these associations become, in some sense, the uh, the the silos uh, that make up. Uh, uh, the university world, and so you have faculty who are effectively uh, trained within a particular discipline, recommended for positions uh, uh, in uh, faculty roles uh, on the basis of uh, you know, the reputation of that department where they train. Uh, uh, they they get chosen by people in the same discipline. They often get evaluated then in terms of promotion on the basis of writing articles that are often in journals that are very specific to those disciplines. Uh, and then, you know, basically your entire professional life is dependent on working well within your own disciplinary lane. So all the incentives for faculty to uh uh to maintain a kind of professional uh uh, uh well to maintain a, a relationship with their professional identity and uh and network. Uh, you know, very, very powerful, and um, and so uh, it is often the case that when you talk to faculty, and I think the same is true in the UK as it is in the US, and I've been in a number of universities, and it's true everywhere, that when faculty really begin to talk about um, where they are, they talk about their department, uh, and you know, I became aware of that, of course, uh, when I was creating this joint PhD program. There was resistance uh, from uh, from some members of both departments that. You know, we're basically, you know, we're going to lose control over this program because it's not going to be adjudicated entirely by and within the department. But these kinds of uh, identities and loyalties and um, predispositions become even more visible when you begin to look at uh, initiatives for change uh, in a broader context across uh, not just cognate departments and the humanities and social sciences, but as you were saying, uh, across the entire arts and sciences, C.P. Snow, of course, you know, wrote the famous book on out of the lectures that he gave on the two cultures. Uh, but they they really do uh, uh, his his that you know that that lecture and that um, that observation really does still characterize, I think, the fact that there are huge divides uh, uh, between uh, the sciences and the arts. Uh, And that um, to a very large extent, uh, in fact, there are multiple cultures in the university and many faculty live within those distinct subcultures. And they do often impede uh, uh, thinking more broadly about the university, thinking more broadly about curriculum, thinking more broadly about the kind of educational function of the university, uh, and ultimately thinking more broadly about uh, both uh, uh, how you teach, but also how you create new knowledge. And um, and and so uh, you know I I I've been thinking uh, for some time that uh, you know we need to mix and match new kinds of structures in order to create different kinds of incentives uh, for uh, faculty in particular to uh, you know to change the way in which they uh, you know they 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 effectively adopt that kind of uh, distinctive cultural uh, uh, association with with particular disciplines, but it's hard. It's hard, and I in the book, I talk about a few experiments that uh, happened in the. US uh, uh, in which you know institutions started without departments, and little by little, you know, those uh, units become departments because there's a kind of uh, gravitational pull to the norm with, uh, uh, which yields in the end uh, much more uniformity than uh, than the founders of, uh, of of experimental kinds of institutions uh, had in, had themselves envisioned. But I, I, I think, in, a, in an odd way, today in, in the 21st century, we're, we're realizing uh, anew that we need to, you know, we need to try again, uh, and we need to try again for a variety of reasons. We we know we were chatting before about the kind of uh, difficulties that many uh, humanities fields or humanistic social science fields have right now: fewer and fewer jobs available, fewer and fewer majors or students reading in those subjects. And uh, and 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 of course, people think that it's only because you know students want to, to go and study computer science so they can be assured of a job in a, in a technology company. But it's it's also because we haven't necessarily changed the way in which we think about some of those fields, especially at the level of undergraduate training. And to the extent that uh, 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 we do that, we can do at least uh, two things. One, we can probably get more students interested because uh, it, it does reflect the world that students are not only living in, but are going to be graduating into. But but secondly, uh, it, it will, I think, uh, uh, be really, really important for the fields themselves. Uh, and artificial intelligence is a great example of that because we now see how explosive the launching of GPT was just a little over a year ago, uh, even as it's led to uh, the development of all kinds of concerns about you know what and how will AI you know change uh, change the world we're living in? How will it change our notion of what it means to be human? How does it change the relationship between humans and machines? How does it change the na- nature of work? How will it change the workplace? How will it, uh, uh, potentially be used in even more drastic scenarios that might involve autonomous weapon systems or uh, other kinds of dangers associated with, or at least hypothesized for uh, AGI, artificial general intelligence, or, you know, the kind of specter of hell and, uh, you know, space odyssey 2001, which is all to say that, you know, the, uh, the, the humanities uh, uh, kinds of uh, uh, issues around Meaning of life, the nature of, uh, of of the human, the character of society, our goals for uh, our collective goals for you know social, political, economic uh, 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 goods of different kinds uh, um, are are critical to the kinds of developments that are taking place today in science and technology. And we could talk about this in structural biology. We could talk about it in relationship to climate change. But in all of these things, it seems to me that um, uh, there's a kind of overweening overwhelming necessity for, uh, you know, for the philosophical, ethical, moral, social, et cetera, kinds of issues that uh, we associate with these fields in the humanities and the social sciences and universities and in, 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 in the debates that are taking place in science and technology. So, um, uh, so I think uh, what... Uh, what is what would be good in some sense for uh, you know for for universities in terms of rebalancing or you know, uh, uh, certainly restoring some of the importance of some of these fields that have been taking such a hit uh, is also uh, uh, clearly important you know, for the world that uh, uh, is is outside the doors of the university where we really need to be sure that the the kind of intellectual mission of of the university doesn't uh, become, uh, you know, doesn't collapse in the face of uh, these pressures to just train people for new technological kinds of uh, jobs and careers.
1: Yeah, I think um, we don't only have the issue of, you know, uh, faculty uh, tying their whole identity to their department, you know, and that making interdisciplinary work difficult. But also you mentioned, you know, students themselves, I think, um you know they they see the value in pursuing maybe degrees that will get them a job after university and they don't see really the value in the humanities and anything like that you know they they, I guess, they want some investment. <laughs> you know, they they spend all this money to go to university, and they want something at the end that will guarantee them a job and guarantee them something. So, from the perspective of students, that's also a challenge, I guess, of how we rescue maybe the the humanities or well, you you mentioned the the liberal arts. You know, more broadly, you know how that's uh not really valued anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, one challenge is also the students themselves. You know what they want to pursue and. Yeah, that's also a challenge. Um, Yeah. And I also want to ask you, you know, you titled your book, The City of Intellect, um, The The Uses and Abuses of the University. And I think, you know, that using that term is also quite central to your whole book, uh, City of Intellect, and how when we think of structural changes and reimagining new universities, how we need to think of them as cities, cities of intellect. So I wonder if you could talk more about that idea or that term, because I think it's quite central to your vision of, uh, how we can make better new universities that, you know, uh, do something different and deal with all the present challenges.
0: Right. Well, thank you. You know, I take the term uh, from Clark Kerr, who was the first chancellor of UC Berkeley, and then he was president of the University of California system. Uh, He was also author of a book that came out of a set of lectures he gave while he was still president. uh, And uh, the book uh, is entitled The Uses of the University. So, uh, you know, I kind of uh basically took uh, a phrase that he used in that book and then the title of his book uh but of course i added an abuses along with the uses because <laughs> uh you know i think things have changed <laughs> uh, you know and uh, uh and i have to be uh you know attentive to the fact that uh, uh there really have been uh you know real issues about both how universities have uh continued to uphold the kind of uh, uh missions that they were established with but also the kinds of attacks that are taking place on the university from the outside. So uh, I try to capture that in the title. But, you know, I also uh, want to be clear that I don't want to be entirely just sort of nostalgic and say, you know, was fine uh, back in the day. And, uh, you know, now universities have lost their way and they just have to return because I actually don't believe that at all. I think universities in some ways have gotten better and better and more and more uh, uh connected to some uh, uh aspects of social change that have been really critical for uh, uh for all of us and uh to be clear i mean universities are much more diverse than they were uh, uh 50 years ago when Kerr was in his roles uh universities have taken on uh in their uh in their curriculum uh, uh curricula but also in their mission uh you know all kinds of social uh and uh, uh and 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 cultural projects that uh that reflect a, a new kind of commitment not just to diversity but to uh to the social good in some sense uh and um and I think uh you know many of these changes have been have been for the good and uh, by the same token even in the classes that we're t- you know we've taken on questions in a serious way around you know my own work on on colonialism uh but a lot of work on uh on 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 questions that uh uh, that were not uh, as much the focus of uh, of intellectual work in the nineteen fifties and sixties as they've become today. You know, on race, on uh, questions of uh, of 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 gender and sexuality, and you know that's just the beginning. Uh, and I, you know, and I have not only been part of these uh, these new movements uh, within the university, I've, I've 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 supported and often championed them from the point of view of an of an administrator, but um, uh, uh, but by the same token, I've, I've seen universities take on more and more and more kinds of undertakings. And um, as they've done so, of course, the cost of higher education has grown enormously. And as the cost of higher education grows uh, and tuition fees, costs of attendance become greater and greater, uh, even at the same time as uh, students are, and you were just talking about this, increasingly worried about what kinds of, uh, you know, what kinds of jobs they're really going to be able to get at the end of this. Uh, will they ever be able to pay back the debt that they incur as a result, and so on? Uh, there's, there's been a, uh, I think a, 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 a growing contradiction. So that you know, universities want to be more and more things to more people, but in, and 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 they have been actively recruiting more diverse students. Uh, and students from more diverse backgrounds. but the uh, uh, but at the same time, it's become more and more selective. Certainly the top universities, it's become more and more expensive. Uh, 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 that's true both in top universities and other universities, since the costs seem to be uh, you know um, uh, incurred at every level. Uh, and of course, that then lowers access and it uh, reduces uh, the kind of, uh, Uh, power that education can have to transform a life if everybody has to just pay off their you know their their student loans for you know their their the next decades of their life they're not going to be able to get on and do do the things that they were thinking about doing so of course that then further uh direct student attention toward uh towards uh towards doing something where they're going to get a job with an income where they can you know pay off their loans as fast as possible so it becomes a kind of vicious cycle and uh And so in that context, I've I've come to believe that we really do need to find different ways uh, to cut the costs, uh, to share, of course, the burden to the extent possible. I, you know, spent a lot of my time at Berkeley trying to encourage the state to provide more funding for the university. Doesn't always work. Uh, It didn't work for me. Uh, I was up against a governor who was uh, very clear. He believed in austerity. He was uh, a liberal uh, in the American political system, but he still uh, championed austerity. That's not always the uh, uh, that's not always the case, uh, as we know from, of course, UK politics. It tends to be the other way around. But that's the co- that's the situation I confronted, and so uh, uh, I came, uh, albeit reluctantly, to believe that you know we really do in universities begin have to begin to think you know can we radically adjust the cost basis of, of what we do? And in, 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 in asking that question, of course, everybody will agree in principle, but they won't necessarily agree as to how to go about it. And, uh, and, and, and that's where, you know, that's where the rub uh, comes because, you know, we all think that all these new things that universities do are, are, are worthy. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, uh, this is where I think, you know, the, the, the kind of the need for faculty and administrative, uh, uh leaders to work together is more, uh, more important than ever, because, uh, I, I think there, there are ways in which we can reconceive of what the function of the university is. And by, once we do that, we can begin to find ways to actually cut some of the costs. Now, again, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to suggest that you you should only cut costs in the ways in which it's been done. Too often, uh, uh, the way the way universities cut costs is they uh, you know, they just hire adjunct teachers and instructors. And uh, you know that that both uh, works to immiserate a new generation of uh, of of recently graduated uh, academics. Uh, but ultimately, it it kicks the can down the road for the institution because it makes the tenured faculty into this, you know, tiny, tiny elite that is uh, more and more cut off from the actual conditions of both the students that they're teaching, but also the colleagues that they're that they're uh, that they're hiring from. Uh, you know, from from the world uh, of uh, of PhDs. So, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, so I know I, all about that. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: and I know you know a lot about that, and I, I I and I don't want. That's why I didn't want this to be a a, a story in which I'm kind of putting my head in the sand and saying, you know, I just want things to be the way they used to be, and uh, Mm -hmm. everything would be fine. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, yeah, you, you, uh, you know, we we don't, in the UK, they're not called adjunct teachers, but obviously, I think it's a different title. But yes, you see professors being, you know, hired on not a tenure track. And of course, you have PhD students to just do the teaching, you know, and um, you don't get like a proper contract or anything like that. And yeah, you wonder, you know, where the university is spending (laughs) all its money, you know, and who are they paying? And um, yeah, you mentioned, you know, that uh, faculty, both faculty and administrators need to work together to, you know, to think about change. I think, um, I wonder if you could say something about administrators, because obviously there's this uh, strong dislike sometimes for administrators and well you, you you mentioned it in your book you know that uh faculty themselves dislike administrators but at the same time they they need them you know both senior administrators and more low low well you would call low-level administrators you know they need them they depend on them because their faculty are so worried with their own careers with their own you know um publishing researching you know uh getting a better job and stuff like that we could promote it but um and they need administrators to deal with the students and you know or maybe even phd students to do the teaching that they maybe do not want to do um but yeah, there's this, always we see this, uh, uh, dislike, you know, faculty, dislike administrator. I don't know how much administrators dislike <laughs> faculty. Um, that's one, one challenge, isn't it? I guess because to make them work together, something needs to, to change or, um, yeah. I, I wonder if you could say something about that.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think, you know, there is, uh, plenty of blame to go around and I, uh, you know, I want to be clear that I I think that uh, while there is blame to go around, there's also uh, uh, really the question of structure, which uh, among other things structures incentives, uh, and it even structures the way people view not just the world at large, but the university in particular. So you move into an administrative position, and you you see things from a different a different point of view, uh, and um, and faculty see things from the point of view of living in their departments. Uh, you know, and um, uh, and it is uh, certainly the case that when I was a member of faculty, some of the most important things uh, 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 that we worried about vis-a-vis the administration was, were they going to give us more lines in our department? Uh, were we going to get more graduate student uh, uh, appointments in, in, in our department? And oftentimes, w- was I going to get a uh, an FTE allocation, a full-time equivalent faculty allocation uh, in a field close to my own? Uh, and, um, and, and those, that, that was the kind of currency as it were of, uh, of, of exchange and communication administration. Uh, you know, of course you also relied on the administration to raise salaries or to, you know, provide research monies and things like that. But again, it was very much directed towards the question of, you know, what's in it for me. Uh, and me is not just the individual, but the circle uh, within which one basically uh, lives and works in the university, which is to say the department. So, you know, my my thoughts about interdisciplinarity actually come back here because I think that if you change structures, you not only change the the outcomes in terms of, say, uh, curricular development or uh, or the nature of program building, but you also change. Uh, you know the kind of, uh, dare I say, the kind of phenomenology of uh, of, of, of uh, perspective on the university at large, and potentially begin to open up uh, the vista a little bit. Uh, 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 so I, I think these are all things that are that are going to be critical for um, multiple reasons, not least though for bringing faculty to the table with administrators. By the same token. You know, administrators uh, 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 often uh, find themselves getting increasingly out of touch with the faculty. Uh, And, uh, you know, they become professionalized too. Uh, And uh, the more they become professionalized, the more they can deal with, you know, the spreadsheets and budget issues and labor uh, negotiations and so on and so forth that take place on the one side and they have to do that. But on the, the more on the other side, they... They kind of lose touch, as it were, with, uh, you know, with with what this really means for students and faculty and staff and others. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be very clear that um, that, you know, these questions of professionalization affect both uh, uh, both sides of the equation. And and and, you know, uh, uh, and yet uh, we really need to figure out, uh, you know, how to work together because faculty are the, uh, are the core of the university in the sense that they're the ones who are, you know, they're, they make their careers there, they stay there, you know, students come, students go, faculty, uh, tend to stay, uh, and, uh, and they're the ones that are, you know, that are, uh, able to champion everything from academic freedom to, um, uh uh, 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 to the intellectual, um, judgments and, um, and evaluations that need to be made about you know what is critical and what isn't critical in a field and how it how it needs to change and 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 so on and so forth and uh and and so one has to be able to tap into that and if one doesn't then you know you get this kind of you know this kind of divide between between these two factions and uh, you know you you sort of see a endless play of class struggle between faculty and administra- administrators which is uh, um, if I can use that that term which is not helpful it's not helpful for you know figuring yeah. out what we have to do
1: yeah and i think um also yeah not not only seeing the value in faculty but yes also in in administrators you know and how um they understand the university in very different ways than faculty do and uh yeah unfortunately you you get this uh isolated communities you know isolated faculty and isolated administrators that Uh, you know, live in their own little bubble. (laughs) And uh, yeah, um, you talk about, uh, I mean, in um, the last section of your book, you mention new, you know, new experimental uh, universities, you know, universities that are kind of popping up in the States that are trying something different that are trying to be, yeah, just different, you know, from the model we're, we're used to. Um, I wonder if, um, these universities are addressing some or most (laughs) of the challenges we universities, you know, typical universities face today. And, um, yeah, I wonder what, um, your thoughts are on these new universities, of course. I know you. You are uh, you champion these new experiments, and you are on the side of trying different things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I, I uh, are these new universities addressing some of the pressing issues? Some of them, most of them. What do you think of their future? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well you know uh I do talk in the end, towards the end of the book as you say about a few of the new uh, kinds of experiments that are taking place and I've certainly been very much in favor of them but you know the truth is when I make that list or when other people writing about this make those uh, those lists you know there tend to be just a few names that come up and then you run out of steam because there's not that much else uh, to name and uh and and so the real worry for me is that there are these Kind of successful uh, um, experiments, you know, as Arizona State University is you know, a, a, a large, conspicuous example of a place that has tried different ways to organize departments, to to, to sponsor research, to think about even the mix between online and uh, residential education. But um, but it's just one 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 model, one 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 example, and in a way, it was able to be successful because it was when. The current president went there uh, over 20 years ago. It was a kind of third-tier, sleepy university that uh, nobody really cared about. So he was able to do a lot of change to it. And similar things uh, could be said, for example, about Northeastern University, that uh, it was, you know, kind of sleepy commuter school that nobody paid attention to, and then it had a dynamic leader and it 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 made some really innovative uh, changes. Um, but you know another example I I, I used is in, in in Canada Quest University and it's had real struggles and, uh, and and it hasn't it hasn't been completely successful even though it was you know really launched with great uh, fanfare and 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 enthusiasm. Uh, but the point is there are not that many examples and uh, and you know to a very large extent uh, we have all the crises that we know about taking place in the elite universities right now. Questions having to do with free speech and. Uh, You know, what is the nature of the curriculum and, uh, you know, dissatisfaction uh, around uh, around students and student protest. But um, uh, but, you know, when you when you uh, actually fan out and look at the second, third, fourth tier universities and colleges, uh, you see there's much more local concern having to do with are we going to be able to fill our class next year? you know, the uh, the barriers for international students have made, uh, you know, uh, those numbers more more intense, too. So, um, uh, you know, so the truth is that there's a kind of real divide between, you know, what the top universities are confronting right now, which, you know, among other things, uh, is never going to challenge the fact that they are going to be very attractive for people to apply to and try to go to, you know, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to have empty uh, empty dorms anytime soon, uh, uh, lo- unlike a lot of the other colleges and universities that are worried about that uh, next year. So you, 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 you often, uh, uh, you know, you, you, I, I think back to uh, both the kind of period of uh, growth of, of colleges and universities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the U.S., and then to the period, uh, the post-war period in the 50s and 60s, it's where, for example, the University of California grew from, you know, basically two campuses to to, to nine uh, or ten, depending on if you count UCSF. And <clears throat> and the uh, you know that that period of efflorescent growth, of course, is is kind of over. Uh, so some of the most interesting experiments are taking place outside the U.S. and uh, and and for that matter outside the U.K., which is you know which which had established its system of higher education uh, even before the u.s had so uh you know so where is the dynamism dynamism taking place and um uh and there's just not enough of it and so even though i do give some examples of things i think are good models i i, I don't mean to suggest that that's you know that's a way of saying everything is fine just the way mm-hmm. it is
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah still champion these new new uh colleges or new sorry new universities but yes they they come with their own set of problems made different to you know the ones facing maybe big public universities and big like you know f- famously renowned private universities as well but um yeah i i wonder if you know cuz universities are you know they they face a lot of attacks in our present time you know you, you get this narrative from the right all the time, you know, that uh you know, universities are just places where you know are woke, quote unquote woke, you know, full of left-leaning faculty, left-leaning students, uh, speech is stifled all the time. There's no real purpose to go to university because it's just full of these like Marxist people. Um and but from the other side, you also get this narrative from the left, you know, that say universities are neoliberal, their corporations, you know, they just want your money. And, you know, you, you get like this uh, attacks from both sides of the political spectrum. Um, and I wonder if there's a danger there of, you know, uh, some of these, you know, either a right leaning person, <laughs> individual, or like, like, if they want to create their own universities, but Uh, you know start a university from scratch or try and make their own model but make it very politicized um, and uh, say well you know yeah uh, I don't know if if you can say something to that I wonder if there's like a danger there of yeah uh, creating universities but not with the best you know not not with this idea of the pursuit of truth and transfer of knowledge uh, and all of the good things of a university. uh, But with the idea of we're going to do something different, but because universities are, we want to make our own thing and make it very political. And (laughs) yeah.
0: Well, there's a very conspicuous example of that in the U.S. right now, which is this new University of Austin.
1: oh yeah uh, I've heard uh, about it actually Mm -hmm. and
0: you know it's proclaimed that it's going to be a free
1: uh, speech or yeah free
0: speech university uh you know open to all intellectual viewpoints and uh and a model of uh of academic freedom but then when you look at the people who are actually going there or being recruited there or uh you know part of the initial committees that are establishing it you realize it's a very specific group that feels disfranchised in relationship to, say, you know, some of the elite universities, um, uh, some of whom, you know, were, uh, uh, have their stories of having been, you know, drummed out of the university for the unpopularity of the views that they hold. And I'm sure that there are stories that they have that are, um, that are, that are compelling. But then what they are tending to do is, uh, is create a very different kind of uh, um, ideological litmus test. Going uh, to be part of this so everybody basically has to have you know the notion that you know woke is is bad in every possible way and, and so on and you know that doesn't strike me as being the way you build a uh, intellectually open capacious uh, genuinely uh, free kind of uh, 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 setting for uh, for a university uh, you know, sure there have been uh, 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 there have been all kinds of issues that I think have demonstrated that uh you know academic freedom has to be uh very actively uh protected even when it's not always popular uh and um and it's it's uh you know i think it's important to learn from some of the controversies that have taken place uh you know what is what is what is effective and what isn't and and what is overreaction and 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 what isn't Um, uh, but uh, but the idea that you know you you take a group of, of people who have been uh, you know um, uh, offended uh, upset uh, 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 cast out of uh, you know of, of the normal university and they're going to create this open space I think that's a little bit uh, uh, a little bit preposterous so um, uh, you know, so so but but that is not to say and again to go back to your uh, to your larger framing of the question. It's not to say that there aren't things that you know critiques from even the right don't get uh, don't get right uh, uh, because of course uh, uh, you know academic freedom is a core value uh, and um, on 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 certainly public university campuses in the U.S. free speech is a necessity. I mean it uh, it is the case that the First Amendment uh here applies to public universities and so you really uh don't have a choice about whether or not in the public square of the university you're going to be able to have speakers from any point of view whatever it might be however outrageous that might seem to some other community so you know that is very much the case but you know i want to go back to even academic freedom and and i and i know that uh you know these are sometimes nationally very specific kinds of discourses that develop Uh, Academic freedom in the U.S. effectively uh, uh, dates back to 1915, when uh, the fledgling American Association of University Professors uh, put out a declaration of, uh, of, of 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 basic academic freedom principles, and uh, and they did so in large part because of a specific incident that took place at Stanford in 1905 when uh when the president at the urging of the major trustee who was uh mrs stanford uh widow of leland stanford uh, uh, basically was offended by the uh, uh by the comments by the political comments of a of a of a faculty member i think in the department of sociology edward Bross was his name and 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 uh and that became a cause celeb a number of people left including arthur lovejoy who was part of the who wrote this book called the great chain of being who was part of the formation of the uh, AAUP in the U.S., but you know, at the same time that the declaration made it clear that academic freedom was a value, it um, uh, it effectively moved the adjudication and uh, protection of academic freedom from the administration to the uh, to the departmental uh, uh, or disciplinary basis of uh, faculty life. So you know, it 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 had this interesting way of saying, you know, academic freedom will be determined by the profession and, um, and, you know, looked at from 107 years, eight years later, nine years later, here we are uh, uh, it, 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 you know, it could be said that, you know, the time has come to kind of rethink perhaps uh, how we frame academic freedom because it, 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 it probably needs to be thought about in broader terms than simply uh, you know, what a particular profession uh, enacts as the kind of standard of relevance or controversy or whatever it might be, and all of these terms are used in subsequent uh, 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 statements and declarations by the AAUP. Uh, 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 and by the same token, you know, even with respect to freedom of speech, the fact that uh, the First Amendment applies to public universities and has been adopted by private universities is not in some sense a license to have, you know, some uh, 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 neo-Nazi come and teach a class at a university, uh, as much as it is a way of saying there can be a public square in the university where people can talk about, you know, the kind of Hyde Park corner, as it were, of of every campus where people can talk about uh, anything they want from any perspective they want. But it doesn't have to be everywhere in the university at all times. And it certainly doesn't need to be in the classroom. So there's a there's a difference between what we mean by academic freedom and what we mean by freedom of speech even as there's overlap uh, at the same time that I think there are ways in which uh, all of these kinds of terms need to be specified in order to actually have not only meaning but also to have um uh you know uh, the, the 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 capacity to 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 not completely disrupt the university and its primary mission which is to you know to produce new knowledge and then, uh, you know, uh, disseminate that knowledge from uh, to 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 new generations of students uh, uh, and the like over time. Uh, so I think you know these are uh, these are all complex uh, uh, issues. But right now, the political debate has really drowned out you know a lot of the sensible things that need to be done uh, in order to restore the importance of these concepts.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think um you know on the on that uh, topic of free speech it's it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult thing at the at the you know um because you uh, universities are well you kind of kind of mentioned it um uh, previously um universities right at the you know the present time are very diverse. Um, you know, you get a lot of international students. you get these different cultures, different religions. and it's it becomes difficult, you know, to to hear certain types of speech and certain t- types of narratives, you know, they think the maybe the potential offense is going to be more complicated and you have to deal with a lot of sensitivities, you know, from people with some with very different backgrounds. Um, so I think it, it's it's difficult. And in your book, you write about your experience with dealing with uh, the invitation of Milo Yiannopoulos to uh, Berkeley, um, and how that was a complicated thing to to manage. You know, in in your role, um, you know, you I think. Well, my impression Milo is quite controversial, and he says some things that can be a bit. <laughs> uh, you know uh, <laughs> a bit out there um, so yeah I wonder you know when faced with inviting ca- characters like that you think about the safety of students but also you need to make the compromise with you know you need to balance things out um, and that happens you know um, all the time now you know you, you get people like Malo being invited to campuses and students protest they feel unsafe they feel it's offensive but then people you know uh people in in your the role you had wonder well we need to protect uh free speech as well uh but yeah it's like you were saying as well it's not like you, universities have this mm, make the decision of who to invite to campuses it's not like you're gonna invite a new nazi you 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 look at the person. You look at who they are. Uh, why are we inviting them? Right? What are we going to say? Um, so yeah, um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about what happened with your, the invitation of Milo and how you handled the whole thing and how you would you connect how you would connect that to similar things that happen uh, have happened since.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Uh, thank you. I the the case the case of Milo really did kind of bring up every one of the complex issues that you've just uh, alluded to, and so you know it, it is it is kind of exemplary, I think, of the difficulties that come with uh, the territory. So uh, Milo was, you know, he was in he was invited to come to the campus by a legitimate student group, the Berkeley Young Republicans. And, uh, and quite honestly, they invited him, uh, for a very specific reason because they knew he'd get it, they'd get a reaction and they almost wanted there to be that kind of reaction that would allow them to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Berkeley it taught, you know, it's iconic for free speech, but actually it's not because it's only, you know, uh, speech on the far left that is protected, The uh, speech on, on the far right is not protected. And so it really doesn't believe in free speech. So this was kind of a setup right and then it became a national uh, test as it were uh, berkeley's capacity to actually show the world that it was as committed to free speech as it seemed to suggest on its website and in all of our rhetorical proclamations including when in 2014 we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement as if uh, it was something that was actually prosecuted by the administration in fact of course The movement itself was against the administration and uh, uh, and and uh, ultimately uh, the chancellor who was involved uh, in trying to, you know, tamp down the protest, lost his job right away. And the president, who was Clark Clark Kerr, who ultimately accepted uh, the recommendations of the free speech movement. Uh, lost his job a few years later because he was fired by Ronald Reagan, who was a new governor of the state of California and basically wanted to hold Kerr accountable for uh, allowing these protests uh, not only to happen, but to, in some cases, succeed on campus. So, uh, you know, we'd celebrated free speech and so on and so forth. And, you know, here comes Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, uh, unfortunately, you know, first of all, Milo is deeply offensive. I mean, you know, he, 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 uh, I I think he was a deliberate provocateur, and uh, he was that way online. You know, he was kind of a troll, uh, uh, both online as well as in person. Uh, But unfortunately, of course, uh, you know, the fact that he had been on this campus tour led to a number of other incidents. And there had been a case at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee where a student had been outed. There was a case at Davis where... There was a kind of riot around the protests on campus, and then there was a case where there was an actual shooting, and injury on the campus of the University of Washington, all in the weeks ahead of his visit to Berkeley, uh, that, you know, faculty and students alike would come to us and say, you really have to call this off. This is, uh, is going to be horrible. But they would say, you know, it's going to cause me harm just by virtue of having him say these things on campus. And, you know, we would say, well, you don't have to go. Uh, in fact, you can not only not go, you could hold an alternate uh, event and, you know, you, you, you're you not going to listen to these words. So, they, you know, are they really going to be injurious just by virtue of the fact they're being said on campus because they're being said off campus all the time? You know that. <laughs> but then, you know, the same students and faculty would also say, and, and not incorrectly, that, um, you know, there would be the potential of actual physical harm taking place. And indeed, there was a riot. Uh, thankfully, uh, nobody was hurt, but there was extensive damage done to the, uh, to the student union and even more damage done to the neighboring town of Berkeley, uh, where, you know, um, uh, banks, ATMs and so on and so forth were smashed. A Starbucks was, was broken down. Uh, and in that instance, it was done so by a group that would have been seen roughly, uh, as being on the far left, a kind of group of Antifa and uh, and so, you know the whole the whole event uh, became this kind of exercise in both uh, worrying about uh, harm from speech, uh, but also worrying about harm from uh, from actual, you know, physical actions that um, uh, that kind of blended together and made it very difficult to disaggregate. Uh, uh, and in the case of uh, that particular visit, Led to uh, you know a, a kind of terrible result because on the one hand, uh, you know the uh, the event didn't take place even though we tried to have it take place so we couldn't say we pulled it off. Uh, uh, Milo claimed he was going to come back and on the uh, basis of of, of that uh, event and Coulter said she was going to come to campus and uh, and we had to begin to you know draw plans to spend in the end millions of dollars to keep the campus physically safe even as we. Uh, wanted to have one of these events take place just to show that we could do it, uh, uh, and yet um, in, uh, in in which, of course, uh, you know, there were many who felt that you know even even the allowance of somebody like like Milo or, for that matter, Ann Coulter or Ben Shapiro onto campus was uh, was a kind of. Um, abrogation of our fundamental duty to to maintain the values of the university, which are values for uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and the like as well. And so those all got, you know, put into this incredible mix of uh, complexity. I think I think in the end, uh, you know, what we learned from this experience was that uh, you're never going to satisfy, I mean, if the right is going to critique you for being exclusive, you're never going to satisfy that that far right group. Uh, um on the one hand. On the, on the other hand, there are members of the far left uh, who uh, uh, fundamentally want you to make uh, uh, decisions about what is appropriate and what isn't that uh, are incompatible with the university as well. Uh, and that the university has to has to kind of uh, um, uh, rearticulate both its um, operational uh, principles, but also its core values. And the core values, and this is what I allude to with the title of the book, City of Intellect, uh, and this is what I really mean by it, the core values have to be around, um, you know, intellectual inquiry. Yes. So we have to, on the one hand, insist that any, you know, any kind of uh, 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 outlook, any kind of view can be argued for uh, and can be discussed and can be debated, and that, indeed, that is what the university is for. But, on the other hand, that... Uh, there have to be, you know, uh, uh, certain kinds of understandings and norms around what debate is, what disagreement is, what uh, what the freedom of inquiry uh, requires, in order for it to be ultimately compatible with, you know, uh, the kind of knowledge creation that is fundamental to the to the mission of the university. Easier said than done.
1: <laughs> yes, it's uh, such a such a big problem. Even here in the UK, it's it's such a such a such a big thing yes uh a problem with free speech and feeling safe and yes it's 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 a it's a, it's a problem um we need to start wrapping up our conversation now Nick but I, I wonder uh so maybe it's the last question uh for people for listeners and anyone who reads your book uh what would you say or what would be the key takeaways or the things that you would want them to reflect on after they read your book?
0: Well, I think uh, the most important takeaway is is just uh, you know that I I, I think after uh, accepting you know all the kinds of things that I talk about in the book, both you know doubtless missteps I made as an administrator, you know doing this as opposed to that or whatever, uh, uh, despite all the kinds of things that are uh, claiming public attention and the headlines that circulate around the university. That there is something really, really critical uh, to uh, uh, to 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 the role that uni- universities play uh, and um uh, and they're always going to make people a little uncomfortable uh, in the outside world. they uh, you know, along with open intellectual inquiry is going to be the potential for people to be offended but um but that the greater good is uh, is 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 in fact uh, um, you know, really predicated on. Both opportunities for, for young people to take full advantage of the education available at the best universities in the world, and that uh, and that, that knowledge is going to serve us uh, uh, well, and that you might be offended today, but in the long term, you know, uh, new knowledge, new ways of thinking about the world, new ways to, uh, you know, both do things in the sciences and in technology, but new ways to even think about, the, you know, the meaning of what it is to be human in an age of machine intelligence and these are these are really really critical and no other institution is going to replace the university uh and and i guess one further elaboration on that point which is that at a time when there are demagogues who are taking over our politics in so many parts of the world universities still are repositories of more objective more critical more uh uh significant uh you know political cultural uh economic discourse uh than we find in our politics and they are really important to protect so yes they have lots of problems yes they have a lot of work to do but boy they're really really important and uh uh and we we need to try to you know protect and preserve even as we change them uh for the good of us all
1: yeah fantastic thank you for that nick and uh yeah, I, uh, I had a uh, thank you for for this conversation today. And thank you for, you know, carving out time in your, uh, I'm sure very busy <laughs> schedule uh, to talk to me today. And yeah, I will be linking a link to to your book uh, in the show notes so people can can go and buy it if they're interested. So yeah, th- thank you. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for being a great interlocutor. It's really been a a fun conversation.
1: I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Nicholas Dirks on his new book, Seed of Intellect, The Uses and Abuses of the University. Thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Ariadna Obergon, here on the New Books on Higher Education podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.